Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Uh, but we're on chapter something, chapter... This is Parents and Children, chapter six, Parents what? as Inspirers. Is this Parents and Children, part four? Yes, primal ideas derived from parents. No, parents and children is the name. Sorry, of the parents. Book. Parents as inspirers, part four. Yes. Do we find? Is, this, this, is this the, the last, last chapter? Yes. I think next this is the is, last one. Next is the parent to schoolmaster. All right. Finally, we get to move on from parents as inspirers. So she starts off with a short review of the last chapter. The last well, chapter. There's a quote. Oh, all right. So. I looked this up. <laughs> John so, Burroughs. So it starts out with a quote, apparently, from John Burroughs. Who, pray tell, is John Burroughs? He was an American. I feel like we just need to end this now. <laughs> he, <laughs> I think, is this the first American she's brought up? Maybe the second, but it, not very many. Um, he was an essayist and a, a conservationist. He wrote a lot of books. This was from Pepatan. Which is actually a river. He grew up in the Catskill Mountains of New York. And he's a fisherman. He was a fisherman. Not currently? No, he kind of died a while ago. Lame. But this was something that he... I, I couldn't find like the exact quote, but this was an instance that he quoted many times. Because the first quote I found of it was in volume 17, which was written in 1913. So I'm looking at this going, I can't... That's definitely it, the one she quoted. It can't be the one that she quoted because it's after. Maybe she knew Marty McFly. Maybe. So this is talking about after looking at a canyon, like a, a gorge type canyon, where the, the child just, it's so much, so different than anything he's ever seen or viewed that he's hes in awe of its majesty and its wildness and its savageness. Hmm. And he, John Burroughs, goes back and quotes this remembrance of his, because it was an actual occurrence with an actual child, many times. Wait, was it his history or a child that he knew that had that happen? A child that he knew that he had that. Okay. Now you can begin. Okay, well, so the quote is, One of the little boys gazing upon the terrible desolation of the scene, so unlike in its savage and inhuman aspects anything he had ever seen at home, nestled close to his mother. And asked with bated breath, Mither, is there a god here? And for some reason, mother is spelled with an I. Mither. Don't ask me. Yeah. People do weird things. So wrong. And yeah. that's how I found it on Google, because it is misspelled ah. or differently spelled. Well, he's American, so. Who, who knows? What does he know of spelling? <laughs> Says the two Americans. Whatever. Who don't spell very well. <laughs> Whatever. I spell real good. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so <laughs> after that quote, we start off with a rehash of the last chapter, which introduced the thought of parents in their highest function as revealers of God to their children to bring the human race, family by family, child by child, out of the savage and inhuman desolation where he is not into the light and warmth and comfort of the presence of God. 
It is the most monumentous work in the world. And then she finishes the section, which I thought with, with some insight that I thought was very interesting. There are mistaken parents, ignorant parents, a few indifferent parents, even as one in a thousand callous parents. But the good that is done upon the earth is done under God by parents, whether directly or indirectly. Well, to back up just a little bit, she pulls the be perfect as your father is perfect. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, is this the best way of sanctification? Parenthood. Well, because in what other way do you see reflected back upon yourself yourself? Kids are really good mirrors. They are. And she talks about that a little bit later in the chapter. But kids absolutely are mirrors. You'll find out what words you say and what expressions you use really quickly. And how you let your emotions control you. Yeah, because they do the same thing. They feed off of that and they learn from you. Well, I, I thought the next bit was interesting. But the good that is done upon the earth is done under God by parents, whether directly or indirectly. And it reminded me of something. And I can't remember if it was your parents that told you or just another parent that told you that one of the best ways to get to know your children and their circle of friends is to be the driver. The carpooler. The carpooler. Thank you. And if you're the carpool driver, then you're the one that gets to hear all of the conversations. And so then you get to be the one that knows things so you can talk to the children. Yeah. And that is that is an attentive parent who is attentive not only to her own children, but to others' children. And that's an instance where that good is done under God by parents, directly and indirectly. To their own children and to other children. Yeah, at the same time. So, so at that point, the other children's parents could be anything on this list, a mistaken, ignorant, indifferent, callous. But there's still a parent that is a good parent as a part of the group of influencers on the child. So that, that popped out to me. What's interesting to see is she does you know, list the mistaken, ignorant, a few indifferent, even one as in a thousand callous parents. And it's interesting to think of how culture and laws are made based on those one in a thousand or a few indifferent. That's true. How the, the net has to be cast so broadly as to catch those parents and to catch those children from falling through the cracks to those callous parents, which affects all parents. Well, it makes me wonder if that's not a consequence of the society that we live in, where we don't live in small communities, where each family has a great influence on each other family, and all of the parents know all of the kids, and all of the kids know each other, and they all run around together and do things outside all the time. Knowing that there is an eye of a parent on them or near them. Yeah, I, even well, then, well, no, knowing that it's not only their parent, right? So, yeah, my mom's at home, but this person's house that we're playing near, they're watching right. too. Or to know that if a policeman drives by, he's gonna know that well, that child belongs to that parent, and that child belongs to that parent, and oh, I saw these two children fighting. All right, guys, let's go talk to your parents. Yeah, and then Mister Policeman walks the children up to the door and throws them on the doorstep and goes, hey, parents, guess what was happening? <laughs> and then Mr. Policeman gets to walk away. Uh, that's that's a function that's utterly lacking in any of the societies that I've lived in in my life. I wonder if those still exist. The places that I would assume they exist are really tight-knit communities, places like a Mennonite community or a... Where they're tied together by more than just uh, location? Well, I mean, location is what ties them together because they can't leave. 
except well, location by, and religion. Right, right, location and religion, but but also they they can't leave. You have to talk. They have no phones. Okay. There's no electricity. You don't have a TV. You don't have air conditioners. So when it's hot, you go outside and find some shade. And when it's cold, you all huddle together by a fire. So places that don't use the internet. I don't know. And with the advent of the internet, I don't know if there's any way to get back to a society like that. But I think also with the advent of the internet, different societies have been created. This is absolutely true. I mean, we are a living proof of that as we are talking about Charlotte Mason on a podcast that's going to be put online. Right. And creating community with other people, other places, very few of them who live here in Winchester. Right. Community seems to be built now along different lines than it used to be. Whereas the community you used to be able to find was the community that literally lived together. Now it's the community of people that commune together, but not together. But not live together. Yeah, not not physically together. They, they commune together while being very far apart. And they don't, uh, not at the same time either. I mean, we're recording this now and people are going to listen to it for the day we release it, the day after we release it, a month after we release it, a year after we, we're going to have communion with people anytime someone downloads this podcast. Yeah. Which is kind of weird to think about, but. Hi there. I'm Crystal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nice to meet you. (laughs) People, people who are downloading this podcast a year from now. We'll and get, the day of also. And the day of. <laughs> I don't know. We'll get Marty McFly and we'll meet each other. By the way, that's a Back to the Future reference again, in case anyone missed that. And the other ones before that. Uh, yeah, the, the so was so with Doc. <laughs> and I don't know if he has any other name than Doc, but, but yeah, that was a Back to the Future reference, which apparently is a really good movie, but I haven't watched it. Ever? Or in a long time? I know I watched the first one. I've seen parts of the second one. I think I watched all of the third one. I can't say I've watched all of any of them, but I think I watched the first one. The first one's a very good movie. So, as revealers of God to our children, the things we need to introduce are ideas. She's going to go into the which ideas and how they should be conveyed. And if you want a definition of ideas, go back to page 34 where an idea is a living thing of the mind. It strikes us, impresses us, seizes us, takes possession of us, and rules us. Parents who recognize that their great work is to be done by the instrumentality of the ideas they are able to introduce into the minds of their children will take anxious thought as to those ideas of God which are most fitting for children and as to how those ideas may be best conveyed. made me think about how homeschooling parents can agonize over curriculum, which curriculum is best, which curriculum to use. We have conferences to talk about them. We're doing a podcast to talk about it. We agonize over this because it's of utmost importance. We need to figure out how to instill the right ideas into our children so that they have the right base. So she's going on to talk about this gentleman's idea. His name is Arthur Hamilton, and he is talking about how he teaches his son. This book of memoirs was a collection of letters and diary entries that as he corresponded with a friend. And he asked, you know, how are you teaching your son about religion? And this was an excerpt of how he is teaching him. And he's not thinking that he should be introduced to the heavy religious dogma at a tender young age. 
It was interesting to to kind of browse the section that she got this from. Mm-hmm. He he didn't want it to callous the boy. He didn't want him to get confused by these theologically hard issues by having them dumbed down to a child's level. And so he just didn't talk to him about it unless he asked questions. And when he brought him to church, he sent him out during the sermon. <laughs> Said, mm. you know, this is, if this is my my teaching, it's don't let them come to the sermon yet. Interesting. Yeah. And so this was how he's teaching his son about the Bible. Much like a lot of the children's Bibles we have and have not read to our children because they don't talk about the spiritual side of things. Yeah. And they're very light on those things. They keep it as, you know, the history, as poetry, as the life and character of a hero. It's a it's a story to listen to and enjoy. Or a collection of them. Or, sure, a collection of stories and a collection of stories that you should hear. And these memoirs were published in 1886. Interesting. That makes me think of the the Bible that we've read to our children a million times, the Jesus Storybook Bible, mm-hmm. where when it starts out, and I don't have it in front of me, I wish I did, the quote is, uh, at the beginning of the Bible, when they're talking about what the Bible is, they say many people think that the Bible is a collection of stories of people that we should imitate, or it's a collection of rules that these are the the rules that you must live by. And if you break them, then, well, you're a loser. And it, it makes me think that he's trying to break the Bible down into these are the rules, these are the stories, and then when you're older, we can talk about God and the divine. It reminds me of the Thomas Jefferson Bible, where yeah. he cut out all of the miraculous and supernatural things. Right. And so you end up with a Bible that's completely devoid of those things. But there's a lot of good morals, and it's a good way to live. But is that what we're going for? But that's not at all what we're going for. So, uh, anyway, getting back to Charlotte Mason, she she rejects this idea pretty, pretty wholeheartedly. At first she says, you know, this commends itself to many persons because it is so reasonable. With so reasonable in quotes. Yeah, exactly. Giant quotes. Because it is so reasonable. But it goes upon the assumption that we're ruled by reason. And this is, I read the chapter before, John, and I've been chomping at the bit to talk to him about this because of this section here, where the right or wrong and reason does bring us to inevitable conclusions Mm -hmm. that are correct based on that reasoning. Mm -hmm. That entire line of reasoning is correct. However, it, it is right or wrong depends altogether upon the initial idea. It's a callback. To page 46. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, right? Uh, The section to look at thoughts as they come. She says, take care of your thoughts and the rest will take care of itself. Let a thought in and it will stay. We'll come again tomorrow and blah, blah, blah. And she goes on and she finishes. It is a great safeguard to know that your reason is capable of proving any theory you allow yourself to entertain. So it's a callback to that. It is. And at the same time, I... My mind immediately went to all of the discrepancies. She went to the crucifixion. Yes. As that being the penultimate of reason triumphing. Right. The ultimate. Pen- is penultimate the second? It's the one before the ultimate. Oh. She... she <laughs> Sorry. She brings us to the crucifixion as the absolute ultimate... Right. Example. Example of reason triumphing. Yeah. 
But it brings me to all of these little triumphs of reason in politics where the initial idea is the thing that differs. Because mm-hmm. you have the idea that, that both sides in the American system, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, both want the same thing, but their initial idea is vastly different. Right. And from those differences spring all of the the minute differences mm-hmm. and the, the nitty gritty stuff where, you know, say welfare, should we keep it? Should we not? Should we expand it? What should it look like? But that comes back to the question, the initial idea of who is responsible for the people and all things come back to that initial idea, mm-hmm. whether right or wrong. And it goes to Hitler, goes to any, any major thing in history what was that initial idea mm-hmm. and we'll get to this point in just a little bit but it says so every persecution or so of every persecution yeah none is born of the occasion and the hour but comes out of the habit of thought of a lifetime so whatever that idea is that is the crucial part mm-hmm. that that changes things yeah my 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 brain went to racism and civil liberties yep even the, the feminist movement, the first wave feminist movement, where it was born out of it, slavery in the United States was born out of a, the black people are subhuman. It's good for us to enslave them. If they weren't enslaved, then who knows what they would be doing. So we're actually helping them by enslaving them and beating them and forcing them to work for us. And so that was the basic thought that they, they were actually less than human. And so, therefore, it it made sense. They were able to reason through that, hey, if these people are less than human, well, it makes sense for us to subjugate them the same way we subjugate cattle. But but that's so wrong, and I'm getting chills right now even thinking it. Like, seriously, it's gross that another person could be less than someone else. And so that was the... There they go again, chills. That was the, (laughs) the whole point of of the civil rights movement was that no, we're, we're people. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. doesn't matter our sex. We're people. We're all made in the image of God done. That's it. That's all we need to have. And in the U S that was only 50, 60 years ago. And in some other places, it's still not there. Yeah. And I think the Bible and the church has been the main driving force behind the abolition of slavery and the propping up of women in society. Because of this view of all people being equal under God. All people are created equal under God. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave or free. And so so Christianity has been the driving force behind the abolition of slavery for women's rights, for, for the rights of the alien, because all people are created equal. Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But those are the categories. You're either slave or you're free. You're either... Male or female. Male or female. Jew or Greek. Or you're Jew or Greek. Your sex, your station, or your race. Doesn't matter. Yeah. And so outside of the Christian movement, and and I'm going to say movement because it, it has been, there is subjugation. And I would argue to say even within. Yeah. Certain sects especially. If Christianity is distorted, yes, then there are definitely flaws. You bring all of issues. that. You bring all of that back in, 
as soon as you upset the balance of we're all free and we're all created equal in God's eyes, as soon as you start distorting any of that, then it all gets thrown out the window. Because again, it goes back to what the root of the thought is. And if the root of the thought is we're all created equal, well, then we're good. Then all of your reasoning leads back to that point. If the root of your thought is not we're all created equal, then you're going to go to some really weird places. I think it's very important for us to take captive what our thoughts are and actually examine them and know where they come from. I fall prey to this a lot where I read something and go, oh, yeah, hey, that sounds really good Mm -hmm. without examining it and actually seeing what it is and finding out what the initial idea is behind it. Right. Again, it's back to that section to look at thoughts as they come. Your business is to look at the thoughts as they come to keep out the wrong thoughts and let in the right. It's super important. And it's really important as you listen to people with differing ideas. Because people with differing ideas are beneficial. It's good to listen to people who have an alternate point of view. Yeah. But when you listen to people with an alternate point of view, you have got to know where they're coming from. There's been a number of YouTube videos of various protesters, like their their leaders actually sitting down and talking with each other and mm-hmm. being like, okay, this is what I'm saying. Well, this is what I'm saying. Wait, they're basically the same thing. Yeah. And then they go to the next step. Wait, we're, we're kind of looking at the same thing. And there were there are differences, obvious major differences. Sure. But a lot of the times they find common ground. And a lot of it. And, and a lot of it. Because we're humans and we want the same basic things. You can look at what Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Pavlov's? Maslow's? Psychologist's Pav- hierarchy of needs. <laughs> I don't know. Hierarchy of needs. Maslow. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid. It is a pyramid. At the bottom are basic needs, then psychological needs, then self-fulfillment needs. Let's see. All all of these are the same for every Mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And how they are manifest are are different, especially the psychological ones. Even the safety needs. Well, kind of. There are varying degrees, but safety is safety. Depends on who you talk to. It, am I safe by having a okay. firearm for myself? I will, or am okay. I safe when there are no firearms? Very true. I will cede that point to you. That's plus one for me. I'm, I'm glad you have one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we're counting starting now. <laughs> I mean, right before I got that point is when we started counting. So food, water, warmth, rest. I mean, those are... Those are the physio- the physiological physiological needs. Security needs then are security and safety. Belongingness and love is intimate relationship and friends. Then you've got esteem, prestige, and feeling of accomplishment. And then at the very tippy top, you have self-actualization, achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. And like I've talked like, about with the dishes, you get bumped down to the last thing. If there's dishes that need to be washed, I have to wash the dishes. Mm-hmm. You've got to start. At the I have bottom. to do that every time. Right. And so if one of these physiological needs are lacking, you're bumped right back down to there. Even if you're right. all the way up at self-actualization, when you get hungry, you got to go get some food. You got to eat. So anyways, every person has that. And in the initial or the ideas that they're different 
are kind of moot when you look at this going, well, everybody needs these things. Right. But it's how do we achieve all of those how things? How do we achieve them is where the differences happen. Yeah. Because there's there's a million different ways to achieve these things. And it would work best if we were all on the same page. Except. We're not. And it doesn't. Except in a monarchy, which is why the family is the absolute unit. <laughs> That's right. Because I'm the king. I remember now. Yeah, call back to, you know, what, chapter one? Yeah, it actually anyway. is. Very nicely done. <laughs> Thank you. That's another point for me. What? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like this counting system. Okay. <laughs> Ignoring John. <laughs> We're going to move on to Calvary and the crucifixion. The event of Calvary was due to no hasty, mad outburst of popular feeling, which, okay, Side tangent already, sorry. <laughs> Welcome to social media outcry. <laughs> right? <laughs> that right? is the definition of hasty, mad outburst of popular feeling. And we've had so many examples of that lately. Yeah. In politics and protesting and, yeah. The one, the one story, we were in the kitchen getting some water, the one story that i was looking for i was listening to joe rogan again and for for you all that don't listen to joe rogan he is a far left thinker uh he's very crass in his speaking so if you don't like either of those things then don't go listen to him and i'm sorry if you already did anyway <laughs> he's fun to listen to and probably don't listen to him with your children don't around. yeah don't listen to him with your children around let me give you that bit of advice at the very least put some headphones on he was having a conversation, and I can't for the life of me remember who or where in it. In the hour before this, I speed listened to three of his podcasts, and I couldn't <laughs> for the life of me find it. I was looking for one name because he knew he had a friend who was a true blue, dyed-in-the-wool social justice warrior. And he was out there trying to trying to get people and crucify them on anything and everything. And he was he was at the top of the social justice warrior chain. Until he took a wrong step and all of a sudden he was no longer a part of the group. He got crucified because he said something wrong and he was, he was out. He was done because he did one thing wrong. Hmm. That was I remember you bringing him up in the past, that I, story. I, it wouldn't surprise me yeah, if you, I did. You talked about that another point. But yeah, so this guy was, his whole worldview was based on this thought that being the social justice warrior is what will give him that ultimate happiness, that self-actualization. It will bring all of these Maslow's needs if he just calls out everyone else on their flaws. And then he got called out on his flaws and then he was no longer a part of the group. And so he had to actually do some thinking about, well, what does actually provide all of these things? And he had to think about what that original thought is. So that's, that's where my mind went with this. So, sorry to hijack the conversation there. I already hijacked it. It's okay. Well, hijacked your hijacking. That's so, back to the me. crucifixion. And this one, it's a triumph of reason on two different sides. One, the religious Jews believed that this had to happen. He's claiming to be God. Mm -hmm. That is not okay. That is blasphemous. That is worthy of stoning, which is why they tried to stone him. A few times. And Jesus kind of went poof and walked away. And they're like, where did he go? In Leviticus chapter 24, they there was somebody who blasphemed. And they pulled him aside. And they're like, we need to talk to God about this. And he said, death by stoning. Mm -hmm. And that was the punishment for blaspheming about God. It was absolutely the right decision. 
And so they tried to. And when they couldn't, because, you know, like you said, he walked out and walked away. Right, because everybody looked down at the same time to grab a stone. And when everybody looked up at the same time, Jesus was not there anymore. When he died, they said, yes, that's right. The virulent hatred which dogged the steps of the blameless life. They were following the dictates of reason and Mm -hmm. knew that they were doing right. Which is where the words of Stephen, forgive them for they know not what they do, come back. Isn't that a Jesus quote? Forgive them for they know not what they do? Doesn't Jesus say that from the cross? Does he? It's late. I'm pretty sure that's also a Jesus quote. I could be wrong. I thought it was, it it might be him and Stephen quoting I was going to say, Stephen might quote Jesus when he says that. Oh yeah, there it is. In Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I had forgotten that Stephen says pretty much the same thing. Stephen's speech. When they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Close. 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 And... The steps of the argument are incontrovertible. It makes 100% perfect sense. The errors in the initial idea that their conception of Jehovah has made the conception of Christ inadmissible and impossible. Mm -hmm. We're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe right now to the kids. And they are talking to the professor about Lucy. And they're going, well, professor... We, we think she's going mad. He's like, what? There are three possibilities. Your sister's telling lies, or she's mad, or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies. It's obvious she's not mad. For the moment then, and unless further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Now, isn't the professor, didn't he experience the creation of Narnia? Yes, he is the magician's nephew. Right. Diggory Kirk. Diggory. Not at all what I was thinking. But then again, this is coming from me, who my favorite book in that series is The Horse and His Boy, because it had nothing to do with the main characters of the book series. And it was a horse that could talk to a kid, and the horse mercilessly made fun of him. It was great. Sorry, that derailed the entire conversation. I don't, honestly, I need to think about where I was going with that. Uh, You were talking about how they crucified Jesus because they couldn't fathom the fact that he claimed that he was God. Well, it's it's what uh, I believe it's Max Lucado that said it, and I could be very wrong about that, but that Jesus was either he, a liar, he, lunatic, either or a Lord. liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Those are the only options. He was either a liar, he lied about it, and they did the exact right thing that they should have. Or he was a lunatic, and he truly believed that he was God's son, and they stoned him because he's blaspheming. Or he was the Lord. Hey, you want to know who did that? C.S. Lewis. Well, <laughs> why was I thinking Max Licato then? I, d- I don't know. Pulled that name out of somewhere dark and... Um, <laughs> but yeah. All right, so C.S. Lewis had that quote. Funny how um, he uses it in the Chronicles of Narnia in reference to Lucy. That's and interesting. And her belief of Narnia. Yeah. Maybe I should read those books again as an adult. Well, we're starting. (laughs) We're reading them right now. Yeah. That's interesting. But yeah, so so Jesus was one of those three things. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. 
And based on their assumptions about life, they were doing what was right to kill him. The other way that people came to it, the Jews came to it, was the patriotic side. Mm -hmm. Well, we need to preserve our kingdom. We're under the Romans right now. He's calling himself the king of the Jews. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. That is a direct threat to King Herod's rule. He's king. You don't go around calling yourself king of the Jews. No, especially not when there's also a Caesar around. Yeah. Well, I don't know if there were Caesars yet at that point. shows you what I know of the Roman Empire. No, there were Caesars. Right. Give to Caesar what is Caesars. (laughs) I'm real good at this. This is why we're doing a Charlotte Mason education. It is not for the children. (laughs) No, it's absolutely for the children (laughs) so they don't end up as as, uh, slow and and whatever else as I am. (laughs) So we can learn right now. Yeah, that's it. But what he's saying is... Hey, we can't. And this is a a quote from scripture. It's expedient that one man die for the people that the whole nation perish not. Mm -hmm. That was Caiaphas, the high priest. So this happened right after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they convened. The the, Pharisees came to the high priest and said, guys, um. This is not okay. In case you didn't know, this needs to be brought to your attention. And this is where the plots began to kill him. And Jesus basically went into hiding. He stopped walking out publicly. Interesting. And then the Passover is coming and everyone's going, okay, you guys all have his name. You have his description. Anyone who sees him or hears of him, tell us. If he comes into Jerusalem, we need to know. But in the meantime, at this this conference, that's what Caiaphas says, you know, yeah, he, he needs to go. So that we as a nation don't die. Right. Well, because he wasn't militarizing the way that you would need to, to lead an uprising. Because their concept of Messiah was one that would set up the Jewish kingdom like it was under King David and Solomon. And to do that, you would have had to fight off the leash of Roman rule. And the Romans didn't allow anyone to fight off the leash of their rule. So they knew that if they let Jesus be the king, that they would get squashed, just like anybody else who had tried to raise a rebellion against Rome. Because Rome, they left you alone until you messed with their politics or their money. And as soon as you messed with their politics or their money, they killed you. So in order that the nation not be killed, again, logical reasoning. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Better for one man to be killed than the whole nation. The needs I... of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And the funny thing is, is that's absolutely true. Jesus died so that we don't have to. He did not say, he, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. A, a little a little commentary there. <laughs> More points for me. For I, John. Yeah, I came up with that commentary. Wait, John of the Bible. <laughs> Not, <laughs> not you. Point for me. <laughs> we share a name. Good enough. <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, he he basically he did not walk openly until six days before the pass Passover, where he came when he came back to Bethany. Jeez. So they were plotting against him, and then all of a sudden he shows up to fanfare. Yeah. And what are they going to do? Be like, well. The next day. So Sorry, five, five days before Passover <laughs> was the triumphal entry. Jeez. Anyways. Right. Yeah, so. Rabbit trail. Yeah, let's let's continue moving on here. Patriotic Jew. Primal ideas derived from parents. 
It is the primal impulse to habits of thought which children must owe to their parents. So I don't know if I found the wrong quote or not. The very pulse of the machine is in a poem by William Wordsworth again called She Was a Phantom's Delight. And it's describing a woman. And I I can't figure out for the life of me what the context or relationship is to the thoughts and habits. Right. And so I think that's what she's talking about when where she's using this quote. The very pulse of the machine are those ideas which lead you Godward, i.e. Okay. Everything you are, every thought you have, every conclusion you reach should lead you Godward. And As opposed to what this other guy was saying when he said split them up between the human side and the divine side. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons we like the story Bibles that we read to our children so much is that every story in them points to Christ, points to sin, points to God. Yeah. It's not just, oh, here's the story of David and Goliath. David killed a giant and we're done. No, it's David was a hero for the people and he saved them. Just like Jesus was going to be a hero for the people and he was going to save them. See, it's not just in a vacuum where this story happened. There's there's so much more going on. It's a giant story that goes from creation to fall to to salvation to the end. It's one giant story and we have to take it all as a giant story. And the same is true in our lives where what's inside of us and those thoughts that we have, they need to lead us Godward. So I think that's where she's going with this quote is the very pulse of the machine. The very thing that drives us and keeps us going needs to be that which draws us to God. And clearly we fail miserably at that. But that's that's who we should be and that's what we should strive for. So I think that's that's what I wanted to bring up because I, because that's what we're trying to instill in our children is to give them those good ideas and to give them that bedrock so that as they grow older, that's where their thoughts go. Their thoughts always lead them Godward so that when they have conversations with other people who have differing ideas, they're able to take those ideas, look at them and say, does this take me Godward or does it take me somewhere else? And if it takes me somewhere else, then get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's why it is so important for parents to instill those primal, those first thoughts into their children, that Christ is the center of the Bible, that everything we do relates back to Christ and the fall and our sin nature and who we are in front of a holy God. Mm-hmm. So was a little diatribe on a short paragraph. Whatever sin of unbelief a man is guilty of, are his parents holy without blame? It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is clearly no. Yeah. Clearly and emphatically no. While parents are not responsible for the salvation of their children, they are responsible for their upbringing and the ideas that are implanted in them in young years. Going back to page 48 here, the mind of Christ or the mind of a child is good ground. All our teaching of children should be given reverently with a humble sense that we are invited in this manner to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, but it should be given dutifully and diligently with the awful sense that our cooperation would appear to be a made appear to be made a condition of the divine action that the savior of the world pleads with us to suffer the little children to come unto me as if we had the power to hinder as we know that we have we can screw our children up bad yep as much as we can screw our children up we can also give them a glorious base from which to rise to adulthood 
We can set them up for success. We can. We absolutely can. And it's their choice if they're not going to choose success. If, if they're going to choose something else, they're their own people. They can make choices of their own. But it's our job to give them the right base so that they can make, hopefully, the right choices. So now we get to first approaches to God. Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild is a hymn by none other than Charles Wesley. <gasps> I know, right? The man who never wrote any hymns in his life? 1742. Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity. Suffer me to come to thee. And there's more verses. So she comes here and says, this was an amazing sight I saw. Was this little child coming to God in the evening on it? It's interesting. She doesn't use him or her on its mother's lap. And she's saying, yes, this is amazing. This is a, a moment I cherish. And, and she didn't have children. I wanted to ask that. Yeah, she, she never married. Hmm. And she devoted her life to the education of children. And some people say, well, if she never had children, then why is she writing a parenting book? And why should we take her parenting advice? Sure. Stick with education. It's a valid question. It, it is. But but this is what she, she saw from the outside, mm -hmm. from not dealing with children 24-7. <laughs> Just, you know, 27 <laughs> or 26. So she did not have children of her own, biologically. And so I don't know if she ever got to experience this. Mm -hmm. But then she says, you know, this is awesome, but might not more be done. And then she gives some suggestions. Not dictates, not directives, but... While you're talking, while you're praying in your heart throughout the day, let them know. Let them hear it. Mm -hmm. And she's very gentle right here, in my opinion. She's very gentle in saying, you know, but might not more be done. Is it possible that the mother could, when alone with the children, occasionally hold this communing out loud so that the child might grow up in the sense of the presence of God? It would probably be difficult. Yeah. For many mothers to break down the barrier of spiritual reserve in the presence of even their own children. But could it be done? Would it not lead to glad and natural living in the recognized presence of God? So, so these are suggestions. And then yeah. she brings up a very fascinating point where in languages that I never knew, you know, in French, or excuse me, in German, Dear Lieber Gott, God, he's addressed as Du. But Du is also a regular form of speech. And French, le bon Dieu. He also says two. But in English, we have the little English child is thrust out in the cold by an archaic mode of address. Our father, which art in heaven, which children commonly say chart. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I love that. And so I, I had the question and I couldn't find anything. Did she ever write a reverent translation into English of the Lord's Prayer that's more approachable. Because she wrote a lot sure. of extra poetry. In my brief research, I was not able to find one. It'd be interesting to know if she did. Because she's mentioning it here. It's like, you know, hey, yes, it's awesome that they can recite the Lord's Prayer. But really? You know, chart, hallowed, trespasses, thy. Right. These things are strange and not commonplace, and they put up a barrier, mm -hmm. which is why one of the things we do is, you know, we say, dear God, or dear Jesus, or your cousin even says, hey, Jesus. Hey, God. 
or hey god as as a way of starting a prayer that's something he picked up through young life which is where they're teaching teaching high school kids who have no relationship with god or the bible or jesus or anything yeah you're, you're taking them back to square one and part of that is when you talk to god you're just talking to god you need to just talk you don't have to use fancy words you don't have to use spiritualness just hey god i got some issues going on right now here they are be mm-hmm. great if you could help me out thanks yeah. god it flows naturally from the child who is used to god yeah let the children grow up aware of the constant immediate joy giving joy taking presence in the midst of them i think there's a lot of value to teaching children to talk naturally and to pray naturally That was one of the things that I learned when I was in high school from my youth pastor. And the thing that threw me, you know, when Brady prayed, he was animated. He would use his hands. He would talk. And if he was sitting down as a part of the group, more than likely, he'd be sitting back on his haunches. He'd have his hands behind him and he'd be lazing back and he would talk to God that way. And I think there's a lot of value to that. I think there's also a lot of value to kneeling and bowing. Because he is holy, reverent God. Because he is our holy, reverent God. And we do need to remember that and recognize that and be the penitent sinner. And that's important to remember. So there's, there's there's both sides of that. That yes, we need to teach our children to be comfortable talking to God so they can. But also we need to teach them that God is a holy God and we are sinners and we are not worthy to be in his presence. And the only reason we're worthy to be in his presence is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you've got those two things that are that are both equally true and both equally right. And somehow we have to we have to teach that. And how do we teach that? Through our actions. Yeah. Because not to not to back up too much, but backing up half uh, actually a full page here, she says children are so imitative that if they hear their parents speak out continually their joys and fears. Their thanks and wishes, they too, will have many things to say. It's what we what we opened up our conversation with. Children listen and children are mirrors. And children will adopt the attitudes and behaviors of their parents. The hope is that they'll learn that when we talk to God, we just talk to God. And so maybe that's one of the things that you and I need to get better at throughout the day is to speak those prayers out loud. One of the things I wrote down here is that We need to teach the children to rely on God always. And this would also force me to think in this way, to change myself for the better. You were talking about how having children is the ultimate act or the ultimate mode of sanctification. I need to work on my own attitudes so that when things get hard, I go to God Mm -hmm. so that the children see that I go to God so that, that they can imitate that. Yeah. But that's something that I need to work on in my own life so that when things are going wrong, I just I don't just blow up and start swearing and throwing things, which is something I'm apt to do. Yeah. I have to discipline myself to talk to God about it. So we're letting them hear us speak our joys and our fears, letting them grow up aware of the constant presence and also letting them grow up with the shout of the king in their midst. And she's talking about how we lose sight of the fact in our modern civilization, but a king or a leader implies warfare, a foe, a victory, possible defeat and disgrace. 
So the the terminology used, the king, means that he has to have somebody following him. And he has to have something to do. He has to fight somebody. Mm -hmm. And this conception of life, which cannot too soon be brought before children. And it goes on, and you have an issue with this where it's not fully quoted. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a typo in the book that we're reading here. So... I'm going to, before we get to the quote itself, the uh, Tom Brown, Tom Brown School Days was written by Thomas Hughes back in 1857. It has been adapted to film probably three or four times and TV twice. Huh. I really want to go watch at least one of those now. Right. And it is this man, Thomas Hughes, kind of doing like a historical fiction thing about his time at rugby school. Now, rugby school is the founder, foundation place of rugby, the sport. Okay, I was wondering how those two things would go together. Yeah. The school was originally established in 1600. And it was reestablished by Dr. Arnold, who is mentioned in here, in 1828. So Hmm. it is one of the oldest independent public schools in England. Um, And it's a boarding school. It has boarding school and day school, where most people are boarding school. And so this was in an address to the school um, 50 years after he had graduated. And he's talking about what Dr. Arnold had taught them at the school was that he's already in a fight. We are training for and we're already engaged in this fight that will last all our lives and try our powers and physical, intellectual and moral to the utmost. It's the world old one of good with evil, light and truth against darkness and sin, Christ against the devil. And it's, she says, basically, this is it. Education is only worthy of that name as it teaches this lesson. Whether it's learned at home or ever they set a foot in other life, it is an insult to say that they're too young to understand this for which we were sent into the world. So there you go. So it made me ask the question as I was reading this, who should be the king? What do you mean? Christ is the king. Yes. Let them grow up to with the shout of a king in their midst. Someone needs to be the king. In, in everything that we do, we act out our faith in metaphors, right? I mean, yes, Christ is the king. But what does it mean to be a king? And what does it mean to be a leader? And how do we show our children that? How do we show our allegiance to the king? How do we show our allegiance to the king? And, and how do we show what a king is and what a leader is and what a leader should be? Well, I think that's one of the things we, we teach them. Well, who do you follow? Do you follow God or do you follow the government? Who do you listen to first? Do you follow God or do you follow us? And we're trying to teach them that, no, you follow God. Right. You follow the one who is the king, the one who is right. And if what you and I say as parents or if what the government says is against that, you follow God. Right. And that's that's where it goes into the defeat and disgrace. Because there are defeats and disgraces mm-hmm. following Christ. It's not all sunshine and roses. Right. Uh, it. What it made me think of is it made me think of sports because... Rugby is a sport. Uh, yeah, he brought up rugby, or <laughs> she brought up rugby, so I went there. And clearly, it was a school, and not actually a sport at the time, but whatever. 
the sport came about in 1845. So it... It was a sport. It was a sport. It was a sport at the time. I, I think of basketball. And and when you're playing basketball, the leader is the coach. And, and he is the head of the team. And what coach says goes, always. When coach tells you to stand at a wall and jump, you stand at a wall and jump. When he tells you to run sprints, you run sprints. If you talk back to your coach, you're running more sprints. If you don't play... It's because coach decided you weren't going to play. If you play, it's because coach decided you were the best option and you're going to play. When you lose, yeah, it's on coach, but it's also on you because you lost because coach has trained you and you should be able to do things that coach wanted you to be able to do. So the analogy there is that in sports, you have a coach who is the leader, who is the the king, who is teaching you and training you and helping you to learn to do the things that you need to do to be able to win at that game or that sport. And so you as the athlete, the player, it's your job to practice and to work and to put in effort and sweat to get better, to get stronger, to get faster, to get more coordinated, to do all of those things that it takes to win at whatever sport you're playing. And I think, I think, and I believe that that can be a great analogy for the Christian life. That God is, and Jesus is, the coach. He does have the playbook. He does tell you what you need to do to get better at this thing that we call life. And we are training, and we are always training. Paul uses the same example. He talks about how he's he, he trains like a, a runner does. He, he doesn't beat the air. He's smart about the way he trains. He uses the example of a boxer. He's not beating the air fruitlessly. When you're a boxer and you're warming up, you do some shadow boxing because it it warms up the muscles. It gets you going. It starts you sweating. It's great. But if you do too much of that, you wear yourself out before the before the event. And so you've got to know, you've got to learn how you work out, how you prepare, how you do all of these things. And so that's where I that that's kind of where I was going with with the question of who is the king, who is how do we show our children how they grow in their faith? One of the ways to do that, I think, is to have them play sports and take your pick as to what sport they want that you want them to play. So that they're actually under a coach. Yeah, so that they're actually under a coach. Okay. So that it's not just this ethereal, hey, God is the king. Because it's it, it true. It gives them a tangible It gives them a tangible example. experience being under a kingship. Right. Okay. I I can I can get behind that. Uh, and and also we spent a whole chapter chapter two, parents as rulers. The parents are the the absolute rulers of the family. So you've got sport that teaches them an aspect of God, family and parents that teaches them another aspect of God. And as they grow older, they get to start putting these aspects of God together in different instances, so that they they form a more complete picture of who God is in their lives. And who God is, period. So the boy of five, the great-grandson of Dr. Arnold. That's the Dr. Arnold of the mm. headmaster of the school. Oh, of interesting. Okay. Or the, sorry, the rugby school. Right. Chose the, the Sunday hymn, Thy Will Be Done. Uh, renew my will from day to day. Oh, it's very hard to do God's work. And it's, it's evident to children at young ages that they are wrong. And, and this goes back to the talk at the end of the last chapter also. And the, the deep-seated discontent. 
and I, I'm not sure how much we need to, to get into this, but looking at the, they're much more aware of their need, need because the tender soul of the child, like an infant skin is spread. It is fretted by spiritual soreness. They're not jaded. Mm-hmm. They're not calloused. You can see that in their emotions. If they're happy, they're happy. If they're sad, they're sad. And it's, it's emotion without reserve. And so it's feeling without reserve and feeling without, I guess, that buffer. It's raw and unfiltered. Yeah. All right. It, it makes sense, and, and I think it's true. I think, I think we can call out the quote of this chapter, though, is this one. Education is only worthy of the name as it teaches this lesson. That in school, and close, we were in training for a big fight. We're in fact already engaged in it. A fight which would last all our lives, and try all our powers, physically, intellectually, and moral, for the utmost. And that it is an insult to children to say that they are too young to understand this for which we are sent into the world. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. So uh, Crystal and I got new boom mics. John. John got new boom mics, and I get to use it. Crystal told me to buy new boom mics, so I did, because I listened to my wife. (laughs) That's always a good thing. And they're really cool. I think it's going to help. John does all the editing, so if he wants editing things... (laughs) <laughs> I think it'll help with the editing. I, I think it'll I think it'll knock down the uh the random table noises. It should help us to sound better, which is always a good thing. <laughs>